Good to see each of you here this morning. And uh, Jan Hunt just asked me to announce that uh, because of the impending storm on Tuesday, that joy in the morning will be canceled, just so everybody knows ahead of time and can make their plans to sleep in late and all like that. So, This morning, uh, I'd like to uh, try and convince you that um, God made a promise way back in the very beginning of time, way back in Genesis, way back in the beginning of human history, uh, that ties together the entire history of mankind. God made a promise that becomes like a theme or like a central thought that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation in the Bible. And I would suggest to you that this promise from God defines a kind of a worldview as to what's really going on today, a way to understand what God is actually doing in the world today, and a worldview that creates a context for us to understand our own personal lives. This uh, promise that God makes is kind of a, a unifying theme of the entire Bible. It's an explanation of uh, what's going on between God and people, God and us. And uh, it goes beyond human history all the way into eternity, into the future. Um, when we understand this promise and we believe this one promise, hundreds of other promises in the Bible uh, clarify and unfold as a result of this one promise way back in the very beginning. But first, I'd like to um, just take this occasion to remind you, because I think it's so critical, uh, that the life that God wants us to experience, Jesus describes as abundant. Abundant. And uh, the idea of abundant is the idea of surplus, or the idea of overflowing. And it's because God is on a mission. God intends to bless all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the earth. And God's plan to do that is to fill us to the point of overflowing to influence those around us and to spill over with God's blessings, with God's richness, with God's grace into other people's lives. It's a life intended to affect and influence those around us uh, because of this mission that God is on. And so um, God has enough abundance in himself. He has enough grace, and he has enough forgiveness, and he has enough wisdom, and he has enough power. He has enough abundance in himself to bless every single last person on the face of the earth. And that's his plan. And that's what he wants to do. And so when we become Christians and we join hands with him, we become a part of that. And the way that this life from God gets to be a part of us is by believing God's promises to us. Um, I'd like to take you to 2 Peter chapter uh, 1 and verse 3 and 4, where we've been before. And again, just to reiterate, how is it that this life of God gets inside of us? And notice how Peter puts it here. He says that God's, verse 3, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to this life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through those promises you may become partakers of God's nature. That the life of God would come into you through the promises, these great and precious promises uh, that God has made, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So I think, you know, uh, what the Bible presents to us is a choice. 
And the choice is between a life of abundance that comes to us from God or, as uh, Peter says here, a life of corruption, right? Because of just living in the context of this world. And so uh, a life of abundance is a life that fills us and continues on into eternity. And a life of corruption is a life that gets worse and worse and worse. A life of abundance gets better and better and better. A life of abundance starts on the inside and works its way out. A life of corruption starts on the outside and tries to work itself in to find life on the inside. Uh, But the divine nature comes to us through the promises of God. And when we believe God's promises, God knows. And God grants to us the power that changes our lives. And we become partakers of the very nature of God. And God's spirit actually comes into our lives and uh, shows up with this life of abundance. And so... When we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning of mankind, uh, we're introduced to God, and um, God is in the process in Genesis chapter 1 of um, blessing, blessing the creation and blessing people. And um, when we go to Genesis chapter 1 and we read about the creation and so forth, um, God, for example, um, in verse uh, 21, creates uh, fish, right? He creates salmon, right? And he creates turkeys, birds, uh, you know? And so we got salmon and turkeys, and we've got the fish and the birds and so forth. And verse 22 says, and God blessed them. God blessed them. And uh, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Let there be plenty. Let there be overflow. Let there be surplus. I'm going to bless you. And then when we skip down to um, verse 26 or so, um, God makes man. And uh, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Let's make man and and let's let him have dominion over the salmon and the turkeys, right? Right? And over the birds of the heavens and so livestock over all the earth, every creeping thing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And verse 28, and God did what? Blessed them. Blessed them. God's intention was to uh, bless, and God said the same thing, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the birds and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God was in the process of blessing his creation and especially um, the people that he created in his own likeness and his own image. Right from the very beginning, God is wanting to bless. Uh, The word bless or blessing occurs 88 times in the book of Genesis, 88 times. So God creates this creation, including people, and his intention is to bless people, uh, his goodness to be shared with people. And Genesis is just the beginning. You know, the whole rest of the Bible continues to unfold and expand on this original promise. And so Genesis 1 to 12 is the foundation for everything else in the world. And when we understand the first, you know, um, few chapters of the book of Genesis, Uh, we can begin to understand the worldview that's a biblical worldview. And while God is out to bless in those first uh, 12 chapters, while God is out to bless the creation that he made, three major catastrophes happen. While God is out to bless, man rejects God's blessing. And it creates a catastrophe for the creation and for man. Three major catastrophes happen. And out of those catastrophes come these core promises of God, which sets the pace 
for the entire rest of history. And it's really fascinating when you uh, study this and think about it. These core promises in the very beginning of history set a pattern. And uh, the first 12 chapters of Genesis kind of reveal a pattern um, that sort of pits God's blessing against man's rebellion. Right in the very beginning, you have this, you know, tension between God's desire to bless and man's insistence on rebelling or becoming independent of God, which results in some core promises that explains all the rest of history. And uh, God's intention to bless is opposed by humanity's rejection of God's uh, blessing. So the first catastrophe, of course, uh, is known as the fall, right, in Genesis chapter 3. Our original parents succumbed to temptation, and they chose uh, to trust the words of the serpent or of the thief. You remember in John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I, Jesus, have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But the thief comes to steal. And our original parents chose the word of the serpent over the word of God, and the consequences were devastating. Uh, And they're still with us today. In Genesis chapter 5, the first few verses uh, basically say that, you know, when God made us, he made us in his likeness. But ever since Adam and Eve sinned, everybody who came to the earth came in Adam and Eve's likeness after that. Like, we're no longer in God's image, but we're in Adam and Eve's image. In other words, we come into the world with a rebellious attitude toward God. We're born with it. Uh, People call it different things, but we have a sinful nature. But out of that horrible fall, and I think most people are familiar, I'm not going to take the time to do that, but in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there is a promise that God makes. It's the first, you know, significant promise. And uh, here's what God says. He says, I'm going to put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. It's a curse on the serpent. And between your seed or your offspring and her seed. He shall bruise you in the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God's making a promise that he's going to send somebody, which is a very weird um, expression, through the seed of a woman, right? A woman doesn't have seed. The man has the seed. But through the seed of a woman, he's going to send somebody who's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's a direct reference, my judgment, to the virgin birth of Christ. It's pointing all the way to the person of Christ who came of the seed of a woman, if you will, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit through Mary, uh, and to be this one who would crush the head of this enemy, this serpent. And it's why Jesus can say to us, look, I've come to give you life abundant, even though the thief is here to steal it and keep you from ever experiencing it. And so this first uh, promise, this uh, promise of somebody coming to crush the head of the thief uh, through the seed of the woman. And as the Bible unfolds, um, we can see in Jesus, especially through the work of the cross, uh, the reverse of the effect of the fall on all who believe. This promise points directly to Christ. The second catastrophe that happened right here in the very beginning in the foundation um, is the flood, right, with Noah. And uh, in Genesis chapter 6, I think these are some of the saddest words in the entire Bible. Uh, Evil spread to the point where God regretted having made people, right? Listen to this, verse uh, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. 
And the Lord said, I'm going to blot out the man that I have created from the face of the land. Man, animals, birds, you know, I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Sin corrupted the human race so bad that God had second thoughts about creating people. And, um, but you know what happens, right? There's a flood, and out of that flood comes, uh, again, a promise. Several promises, actually. You remember, of course, in um, chapter 8, uh, the first promises have to do with never sending uh, a curse like that again. Um, the second part of uh, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And then, of course, if you go to the ninth chapter, God also makes a promise about a rainbow, and the rainbow is a reminder of this promise that God has made, and never since the days of Noah has there been uh, as devastating a flood. But look at this promise in verse 26 of chapter 9 of Genesis. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jephthah, uh, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Uh, this is a promise of God to be with Shem. Noah had three sons, and uh, Shem is at the head of the uh, what are called the Semites, uh, and the Jewish people are part of the Semite uh, race uh, that descended from the three uh, sons you know, of Noah. And so here is a promise that uh, God is making to be with the Jewish people in particular and to carry this promise of sending a Messiah, sending somebody you know, who is going to come through the Semite race um, and uh, Abraham and the Jewish people uh, come to us through Shem. And then the third catastrophe happens. Um, in chapter 10 of Genesis, we have the um, nations uh, develop and they all come together to uh, build the... Uh, the tower and the city of uh, what eventually is called Babel. And um, some people think the root of Babylon. Um, but uh, what happens here is that people wanted to make a name for themselves apart from God. Who are you? You're a creation of God. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. That's your identity. But people said, we don't like that identity. We're going to create an identity of our own, and we're going to base it on something we do ourselves. And we're going to base it on our own achievements and so forth. And so... Um, verse 4 of chapter 11. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the, the Lord said, you know, they're one people and they have one language and uh, this is only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing they propose to do will be impossible. Let's go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And then the Lord spread people all over the face of the earth. And so he created these nations and different um, language groups in order that people would have, uh, in an effort, I think, to try and create a, an atmosphere where people would turn back to God to find their identity and to understand who they are and, and their worldview. And out of that, uh, the Tower of Babylon, all of that uh, dispersion of the nations comes a promise in chapter 12 in the first three verses to a man named Abram. And uh, this is the promise that uh, the New Testament refers to often as the promise. And uh, it incorporates the first two promises. And here's what God promises Abram. Uh, first three verses of chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 
So the first part of the promise is land. That's why people are still fighting about the land of Israel today. And I will make of you a great nation. That nation turns out to be the nation of Israel. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. All three major religions in the world still today from Genesis claim Abraham as their father. Uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all look to Abraham as uh, their father and as the source of their faith. Uh, you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then here it is, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's a promise that God makes, that through Abraham and his descendants, and Israel in particular, and Israel's greatest accomplishment, producing the Messiah, who turns out to be Jesus Christ, I will bless every last uh, ethne is the word, every last people group on the face of the earth. And so out of this catastrophe of the Tower of Babel comes this promise to bless everybody. God will bless the whole world through Abraham. Gave him a land, gave him a nation. Um, and Israel's greatest accomplishment, I think, is the seed of the woman, the Messiah, who is none other than Jesus Christ, who restores our identity in God, blesses the whole earth. And that's why there is salvation in no other name other than the name of Jesus. It's God's promise to us, and it's God's way of be making that promise good. And so God's goal is to bless people, to bless people, and to give people an abundant life. And um, it's met with resistance. It results in a catastrophe. But God's promise continues to offer to bless those who trust him, and that promise cannot be stopped. There's simply no power greater than God that can stop his promise. Next week, we're going to see how God makes this promise good in the culture of his day by taking on a, a, a covenant with people and uh, sort, of, sort of like signing a contract. And uh, it's really fascinating that God does this by himself because there is nobody else that he can make this with. And this promise is the unifying theme, the center that runs through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the promise to bless uh, extends on into the afterlife. And so if you would have a biblical worldview, if you would fit your life into this, the promise of God is it. And if you have to um, identify a single purpose of God, one organizing theme around which everything else that God uh, says to us fits, it's this one core promise of God promising to bless people's lives. He made a promise to Abraham and through him to all mankind, a promise ultimately fulfilled in eternity, but partially fulfilled in um, history. When the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Acts chapter 26 was on trial for his life, he explained, now this is thousands of years after God made this initial promise, right? He's on trial for his life in um, Acts chapter 26, and here's what he says in verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise, the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by anybody that God raises the dead? Paul's whole understanding of Jesus goes all the way back to this promise. And God, if, if you become a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a part of something that is thousands and thousands of years in the making, right? It's not a Johnny-come-lately afterthought. It's not like a rescue, you know, uh, 
emergency kind of thing. It's been the plan of God since the beginning of time. And this is the way that God has chosen uh, to restore us and to bless us. And this promise that Paul talks about, he calls it the promise uh, that God made to our fathers. Notice he doesn't call it a prediction. He calls it a promise, right? And he doesn't um, say promises, plural. He says, I'm on trial and I'm putting my life on the line for one thing, one promise, the promise that God made to bless people. What difference would it make in your life if you really believe that in the future, God's intention is to bless your life? You know, the only life you have left to live is your future, right? It's like a nanosecond between your past and your future. The only life you have left to live is your future. What if you really believed that it was God's intention to bless you? No matter what comes your way, you could know in the heart of God, his design, his intention, his purpose, his whole reason for uh, creating us and, and for us existing is to bless us with a life of abundance. And what if we could fit the suffering and the brokenness and the confusion and the setbacks and all of those things into this context of believing the promise that God made at the very beginning of time, like the Apostle Paul did. I'm on trial. I'm ready to lose my life here. I'm going to die. But guess what? God raises the dead. It's not a big deal. And Paul lived his life, and it set him free because he believed the promise, the unbreakable promise of God to bless people. There are over 40 passages in the New Testament that refer back to this promise. In Acts chapter 7, um, Stephen, you remember, is the first martyr. And uh, in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen also talks about this. He goes through the whole history, you know, and I won't take the time to read all of that. But in Acts chapter 7, uh, verses 2 and 3, he says... um, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land uh, of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there to this land in which you are now living. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham... The people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And then he goes through the whole history of how God established the nation of Israel. And out of Israel comes the Messiah. And through the Messiah comes this reconciliation with God uh, to restore us back to the image and the likeness of God uh, for which we were originally created, which will ultimately be fulfilled in heaven. Uh, Just one more place in um, Galatians. uh, Paul is writing to the church in Galatians. And in Galatians uh, chapter 3 and verse 29 He says this, he says, if you are Christ's, if you're a Christian, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, heirs according to the promise, the promise to bless people from the very beginning of time. And so there are many other passages of scripture we could work our way through, but this promise, when we understand it and when we appropriate it personally into our own lives, when you personally believe that God has the fullest intention to bless your life and to give you a life that's abundant, the very nature of God, sharing God, God sharing his nature, his life with you to the point of abundance and surplus. And when you believe that promise, there's all these other promises that begin to unfold. And I began to try to think, you know, because it's true, isn't it, that the only life you have left to live is the future. 
It's the only life you have left to live. And only God knows the future. And how, what kind of comfort would it be if you knew that it was God's purpose and intention to bless your life, no matter what, how you would interpret whatever comes your way, that ultimately God intends to bless your life. Um, will I live the balance of my life, my future, believing the promise of God? And uh, will I embrace this uh, promise that God is going to bless my life and that I can count on it? And as uh, we saw last week, that all of the promises of God are yes in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.20. All of the promises of God, and there are hundreds of promises as this major promise begins to unfold throughout the scriptures and throughout history. There are hundreds of promises, and they're all yes in Christ. They're all dependent upon what Christ did on the cross and on the resurrection. And so um, I, I tried to think of just something a little practical that, well, so what? You know, I just had people in my mind. I'm, I'm sitting here, and I think people are saying, well, so what? You know, um, But let's just take one uh, subject, the subject of anxiety. I thought, uh, you know, in, uh, what would it do if you believed that God's full intention is to bless your life in the future? What would happen to, let's say, um, the level of anxiety uh, that we live with? Uh, maybe, maybe you have anxiety about money, right? And uh, you're not sure you're going to have enough or, you know, whatever. And uh, maybe you even uh, steal some money one time or, or you're greedy or you're coveting and and this anxiety changes into kind of a sin, and but behind that sin, there's this issue of anxiety and being uptight. Maybe you're anxious about what you know other people think about you, and uh, maybe that's the reason that you lie sometimes, or maybe you cover up things because you are so anxious about what other people think about you. You're always kind of playing to that audience, or maybe you're anxious about succeeding or not succeeding in life, and maybe you're always tired because you're trying so hard to succeed in life, whatever. Uh, succeeding might be, or maybe you're um, anxious about a relationship and, and uh, maybe that's why you're withdrawn or indifferent or uncaring or whatever. Uh, but in Matthew chapter 6, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a section here that, you know, he talks about anxiety. It's kind of interesting. Um, four times in this uh, little paragraph, uh, Jesus mentions anxiety. So I want to read it for you. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life. So don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or about your body, or what you're going to put on, is not life more than food, and is the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Uh, they neither sow nor reap, gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow and neither toil nor spin. Uh, yet I tell you, uh, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, uh, will he not much more clothe you? And then he says this, O oh, you of little faith. O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need all that. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these other things will be added to you. And therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day 
is its own trouble, right? So what's this about? Well, it's about anxiety, right? And what's, what's the core problem behind anxiety? Little faith. Little faith. Most of us, uh, if we were to be honest, I suspect when we come to that 33rd verse where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added to you, we usually live the exact reverse of that. First, we seek all the other stuff. First, I have to pay the mortgage. First, I have to you know, get the clothes. I have to get the food. First, I have to take care of my physical being and so forth. And then if there's anything left over in, in energy and time and so forth, I'll pursue my, uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus is saying, look, flip that. Do just the opposite and watch the anxiety melt away in your life. Trust me, trust this promise that I intend to bless you. I know you need to eat. I know you need this and that. And this. You know, a place to, if you live in Connecticut, you need some heat and, and so forth. I know all that. Don't worry about it. But you seek first my kingdom. You first be about my business, and I'll take care of all that for you. And I think, how many people really like, live like that? And uh, what would that do to the level of anxiety if we could believe Jesus? And so I think, if I read this passage right, the, the root of anxiety is little faith. Inadequate faith is what produces anxiety in any area of your life. Ask yourself, in what area of your life, you know, uh, do you have anxiety? And then is there some promise that God has made with regard to that particular area of life? Sometimes people will ask me, you know, well, how are you doing? And I never know, like, well, do you mean how am I doing socially in my relationships? Do you mean, like, how am I doing emotionally? How am I feeling? Do you mean, like, how am I doing intellectually? You know, do you have these big questions? How are you doing spiritually? Or do you mean, how am I doing physically? How are you doing? Well, we have a lot of different areas in our life. And so if you ask the question, where do I have anxiety? Where does that pop up in my life? And assume that for, for whatever reason, there's a lack of faith there. There's something more that God has for you to experience abundance in that area of your life. And there's something that I'm not trusting him with. And when I choose to take him at his word and to trust his promise that he intends to bless in all of those areas, um, suppose I find that promise, you know, and I begin to choose to believe it. In Mark uh, Chapter 9, uh, this father comes to Jesus with his son. You might remember this, and his son is possessed by an a evil spirit, and uh, the spirit like throws him into the fire, throws him into the waters, trying to kill him, trying to destroy him. He's like the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And uh, so in Mark chapter 9, it says they brought the boy to him, and um, when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asked his father... How long has this been happening to this kid? And uh, he said, from childhood. And the father said, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, right? Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to this father, if you can? You're asking me if I can do something, you know? All things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cries out and says to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I thought, you know what, that is the story of all of us. We believe, but we have a line and we have unbelief. And I'm hoping that this year as we go through the promises of God, we will move that line so that we stop 
the unbelief, or we increase the belief to the point where it makes a difference in how we live our everyday lives, and that we experience this power from God that comes to us through believing the promises. Um, especially if I believe that God is out to bless my life in the future. Uh, we all have some unbelief, and I think that um, as we allow the Lord to uh, bring these promises to us, uh, and we uh, struggle to, to truly believe them and act on the basis of them being true. And again, we talked about this, and I know it's true that we've had so many promises broken to us that we all become skeptical, and we, we tend not to believe any promises anybody makes to us, and we say, oh, well, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, and the truth is that's not the way God operates. If you wait until you see the promises that God has made, it'll be too late. Um, and then, uh, you know, one other just thought here uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when Paul's writing to young Timothy, he says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. You know, there are good fights and bad fights, right? You know, just ask yourself the question, hey, who am I fighting with right now? What am I fighting with? What, what front are you finding yourself fighting on? Because Paul says to this young Timothy, he says, you know, if you're going to fight, fight the good fight, the fight of faith, the fight of the faith. Uh, what fights are you fighting? You know, some people are fighting other people, right? I mean, lots of people think that it's somebody else's fault for what's going on with them, and they're, they're, they're fighting other people. Like, everything is somebody else's fault, and I'm a victim. And, and you have people who all the time are fighting other people um, instead of fighting what to believe what God promises us. What if you could find a promise someplace that explains what God says about other people, a promise about other people, and choose to believe that instead? Fight with, with that faith that's too small and increase that faith to the point where I believe the promises and stop fighting with the person. Other people, I think, are fighting with circumstances, right? People have situations, circumstances in their life, and they're fighting to overcome circumstances and um, it would be better to find some promise that God makes about circumstances and fight the good fight. Fight the fight that makes a difference in you. Fight the good fight, the fight of the faith. And take that promise that God makes about circumstances and choose to believe it, like a Romans 8.28 kind of passage. You know, would you say, uh, I'm going to choose to believe this about these circumstances instead of fighting the circumstances. And then I think some people are probably fighting themselves. Uh, with esteem, you know, self-esteem issues and can't forgive yourself and I can't get rid of this anger that I have over something that happened to me and, and it's eating me up and so on and so forth. And maybe instead we could find a promise that God makes about ourselves and about our emotional well-being and choose to fight to believe that promise instead of fighting against ourselves. And again, uh, the only life that we have left to live is our future life, and that's where the promises of God are actually focused. In fact, uh, in this passage, it says, fight the good fight of the faith. The very next thing Paul says to young Timothy is, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. You will misunderstand the promises of God if you don't understand that God has an eternal life on the other side of this life for us to live. And to be able to set this life, you know, these first 80, 100 years into the context of this eternal life, changes everything about your perspective on this life. You know, in, in a couple hours, we'll have a, uh, a memorial service for Dan Horniak, who came to know Christ, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. And uh, when I visited with him, he was like, I am so thankful that I got to know Christ before I died. When he knew he was dying, he only had a couple of weeks left, you know. 
And uh, that's what Paul's, I think, saying to Timothy. Look, fight the good fight, which is the fight of faith, and take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Grab a hold of that eternal life and stop being limited to just the context of our earthly life and allow that uh, eternal life to put perspective on everything else. Um, what do you say? Uh, where are you fighting? Where are you fighting? Who are you fighting? What circumstances are you fighting? Are you fighting yourself? Why not fight to believe the promises that God made and allow your faith not to be a little faith, but to be a bigger faith and see what happens as to how life begins to unfold differently with the abundance that God uh, has in mind for us. You know, way back in the Old Testament, there's a guy by the name of Jeremiah. We talked about him a couple uh, weeks ago, and Jeremiah got a really tough assignment from God, I think. He, he really had a tough life. And uh, Jeremiah got to the point, you remember, where he curses the guy who came with the cigar and said to his father, you got a boy, you know. And then Jeremiah's like, curse that guy, curse the day I was born. I should have never come out of my mother's womb. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, well, well, Jeremiah really had a tough life. So after the book of Jeremiah is the book of Lamentations. And Jeremiah's like my age, and he's sitting down, he's looking back over his life, and he's, he's like reflecting, and he's lamenting what a miserable life he had. You know, he's lamenting the fact that nobody listened to him, even though God gave him this assignment and he did what he was told and, and, and it was so hard and so on and so forth. And in the middle, right in the middle of this book, it's only, you know, five, six chapters long, five, I think, but right in the middle of um, Lamentations in chapter three and verse 21, here's what he does. In the middle of lamenting about all the terrible things that happened in his life, he says, but I call to mind. How do you increase your faith? Well, we sang about it, the word of God, right? I call, I, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God made a promise in Genesis. He's going to carry it all the way through into eternity. I can count on it. I have to put the lamenting about my life in the context of the promise that God made to bless my life. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. This is an all or nothing proposition. Jeremiah could not interpret the events that were going on in his everyday life without the context of the promise of the blessing of God and God's intention to bless all the different ethnic of the earth. And you and I are part of that great promise. It runs all the way through. All the other promises really are uh, unfoldings of this great promise that God made. I hope you have promises that you turn to when life gets tough, right? Uh, there are many of them, of course. And, uh, you know, one that uh, I often turn to is in Philippians 1.6. It says, you know, that God who begins a good work in your life will see it through to the end. So many times when I get discouraged or I think like, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm taking two steps forward and three steps back, and da 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 da. You know, you go to that, and the God who begins a good work, He will see it through until the end. You don't have to worry that He's going to give up. You don't worry that His faithfulness is not going to show up tomorrow, and so on and so forth. The blessing of God, believe it, and watch the other promises uh, bring power and the divine nature right into our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I love this uh, thought that uh, your promises create kind of an organizing theme through the entire Bible. And that when we go all the way back to the basic fundamental promise, 
It's that you intend to bless people's lives. We lose sight of that. Sometimes, forgive us, Father, but we just get so caught up in living our everyday life, so caught up in, the, in this temporary life, and our focus gets off of you. And we become so casual about those opportunities uh, uh, where, our, where we would become refocused, Father, like coming together and studying your word this morning and, and uh, realizing, Father, that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God and that we can trust you in spite of all the promises that have been broken and the promises that we break to other people. Uh, we're not you, and you're different, and you have never broken a promise that you've made. And so I pray over the course of this coming year, you'll help us to understand your promises. Help us, Father, to get them straight to, to the point where we increase our faith in your promises to the point where we're unshakable like Jeremiah got to be. And uh, to that end, I pray that you would bless us and guide us and have your way with us. For Jesus' sake, amen.